The scripture reading this morning is from Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Lou Damiani is coming to read that text. Let me invite you to stand of honor for God's word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill a promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. We are in our fourth uh, week of Advent, and uh, the, the passage today is Jeremiah 33. Uh, and for the last few Sundays, we've been in, in uh, a huge book of the Old Testament uh, called Isaiah. And uh, today, we're going to move just a little further, a little deeper into, into the Old Testament uh, to the next book, to, to, to Jeremiah. Um, and, and, you know, we've said this every week, but the word Advent, it, it means coming uh, or, or arrival. And so during this season, uh, our, our culture has already started the party, uh, typically, uh, and maybe, you know, you've participated in that, I've participated in that, it's kind of a, a, a normal thing to do, uh, but we are actively trying to, to, to think of this season as, as a season of waiting, uh, that December 25th, the day that we, that we celebrate, the day that we recognize the coming of Christ, uh, that, that's when the party actually starts, and so the season of Advent leads up to Christmas Day. And, uh, and so we, we, we want to uh, try, try to think, what would it be like to be waiting for the Messiah to come the first time? And then we remind ourselves that we're, we are waiting. We're, we're waiting for the Messiah to come the second time, the final time. And so we, we, we take this, this posture, this, this, this attitude of, of, of waiting during this, uh, during this season. And we've considered the, the historic themes of, of Advent. So far, we've seen love, joy, peace. Uh, today, we're going to consider uh, the subject of, of hope. Uh, so as you think about that word hope, um, you know, I'm sure something comes to your mind in regard to how you would define that, what, what, what it means. And uh, even if you've never written out a definition, I, I'm assuming uh, that you've had seasons of your life where you are just, you're full of hope. Uh, and, and maybe you're in a season like that right now, just like where, where you look at tomorrow and you just, you think about tomorrow with a ton of optimism, that you're just, you're excited about what's coming next. Um, you, you, the, like what, 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 what your opportunities are, uh, kind of get you out of bed. It, it doesn't take a lot to get you, uh, to get you to, to, to be excited about the future. Uh, Lauren Breedelin is, is home with us here and she's getting married in less than two weeks. And so, yeah, congratulations, Lauren. And that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's a pretty hopeful, pretty exciting thing. Uh, and that, that, you know, I could see like, yeah, man, the anticipation of, of, of getting married. Uh, maybe you think about the year 2022 and uh, you're going to graduate from high school. I have, I have a daughter who's going to graduate from high school in 2022. Um, maybe you're going to finish a, a, a degree that you've worked on for a really, really long time. Maybe you're going to hit some financial goals or uh, whatever the case, that you, you, you know what it's like to be full of, of hope. Maybe you feel hopeless. Maybe instead of feeling you know, so full of hope like the Detroit Lions fans do every August, <laughs> you feel more like a Detroit Lions fan in September 
when hope has been destroyed only a few weeks into the season. Uh, but no, you know what it's like to be, to be, uh, to feel hopeless, you know, when, 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 when honestly, when, when we think about the last two years um, and, you know, since March of 2020 and the, the incredible amount of, of disruption and loss that has come uh, from, from this global pandemic, uh, just this week, I, I know of, of three, three people in our church who have had people that are close to them who, who have died just this, this past week. Uh, my wife's childhood friend, uh, 48 years old, uh, died of COVID this, this past week. Uh, all the questions that still in fr- sit in front of us with COVID, with new variants, and what will next year look like, and what will the year after that look like, and is this the new normal, and all the, all the fears that, that, that might uh, well up in you, all the, the loss, the disruption, the, 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 the questions that allow you or that do not allow you to look forward to tomorrow with any sort of anticipation. Uh, I think about our congregation and, uh, you know, apart from a global pandemic, just some of the challenges and, and stories that are unfolding right here among us, the stories of, of cancer, of long-term illness, recovering from tragedies, the loss or the potential loss of employment, the loss of a loved one, lawsuits, estranged children, marriages that are struggling to survive, addictions, financial trials. The list is really, really long. And when I look at faces in this room, some of those stories uh, immediately come to the forefront. It's easy to see this stuff and, and to feel hopeless. It's easy to be personally involved in these situations, especially the ones that have been long and drawn out and, and kind of conclude, I, I don't know where, I don't even know how I would find hope in this kind of a circumstance. Do you know it's possible to be hopeless and not even realize it? To just kind of feel empty about the world? To just kind of feel flat about the world? Well, if that's your situation today, uh, you are not alone. You're not alone in this room. There's a lot of people who can relate to the journey of, of feeling hopelessness, uh, feeling hopeless, so there's, there's friends right here. Now I want to invite you if, if you, if you would like to call, if you would like to reach out, uh, our, our church, our staff, our team would love to communicate with you, would love to be with you. Uh, this coming Tuesday night, uh, we plan to be a sweet space for you to gather, for there to be uh, opportunity for you to receive. Uh, the longest night service is, is there's way less participation. It's much more of a space for you to come and receive for you to come and to be present and to be present with others. So you're not alone. You're also not alone in history. Because as we come here to this passage uh, in this book that's called Jeremiah, um, it is interesting that uh, hopelessness is what's happening to both the people and to the prophet himself. And so as we look at this, the, the, this, these few verses, just three verses in the middle of Jeremiah 33, uh, we're going to learn a little bit about this prophet himself named Jeremiah and the people that he was called to. So some pretty tough circumstances. Who is Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah was not a bullfrog. Uh, he, he, was, he was a prophet and he was known as the weeping prophet. And he was known as the weeping prophet for a really good reason. He was a rejected prophet. 
He was a reviled prophet. Um, His own hometown plotted to kill him, persecuted by his own family. Uh, If if we were to detail what what we know from the Bible and from history, uh, the historical accounts, the, 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 the amount of things that were piling up against Jeremiah... It's almost uh, unthinkable. And so just here's here's some of them. Uh, The chief priest at that time had Jeremiah whipped and put in stocks. He was nearly killed by an angry mob, which included priests and prophets, after he preached a sermon in which he predicted that the temple would be destroyed. Uh, He was accused of lying by a false prophet. Uh, and that prophet had said that this Babylonian captivity, all the, 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 the trouble of Israel and, and, and Judah, it was only going to last a couple years, that their exile would, would be over quickly. And he says, Jeremiah is a false prophet. Jeremiah t- telling you that it's going to last so long, he's, he's, a, he's a liar. Uh, and if you're a prophet and you get accused of lying and that's found to be true, uh, that's pretty problematic. Um, Jeremiah, uh, in response to this guy, Jeremiah had his own, uh, you know, his, his own uh, attitude <laughs> too. And Jeremiah responded to him by pr- predicting his death. And uh, two years later, that false prophet did die. Um, Jeremiah was threatened by the king. Uh, he was arrested, flogged. He was accused of treason. Uh, he was thrown into a, a filthy cistern twice. Uh, the original manuscript that was written, that, he, that, was, uh, that his scribe wrote down as he prophesied for the Lord. Um, there's a, 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 a situation here, and I won't give you all the details, uh, but his scribe wrote down all of these oral messages. And as they're being heard, the people eventually say, the king needs to hear what Jeremiah is saying. So they get Jeremiah's script. They get, they get the, the scroll, and they take it to the king. And as the representative is reading it to the king, he is taking a knife and slicing. He'll, he'll read a few columns, and he sliced them off and threw it in the fire. And then read a few more columns, sliced it off, and threw it in the fire. And eventually, he burned the entire manuscript. Uh, there, there was no Microsoft Word. You know, this is not saved. This was, it was written down on, on a scroll. And as he reads it to the king, the king doesn't like it, and he just burns it little by little by little. He burns the entire thing. And after it's all burned and Jeremiah finds out that it's burned, Jeremiah was then commanded by God to rewrite the burned sections, to do it all again, and to add some more, actually. Jeremiah had become super frustrated, super depressed. Uh, His inability to call uh, the people of Judah to to, to hear the word of the Lord uh, left him in in a discouraged place. This is what he said. He said, I will not make mention of God. Now, this is, what I, this is what I said in my heart. I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more his name. But his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. And then he says these, some of the most despondent prayers in all the Bible. He says, cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bore me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto you, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. And let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide, noontide, because he slew me not from the womb 
or that my mother might have been my grave, and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my days should be consumed with shame. So he says, cursed be the day when I was born. And anybody who celebrated it should be cursed for celebrating it. They should have killed me the second I came out. That's how bad my life is. That's how ugly things look right now. And you would respond to that with, whoa, you'd be right. That's pretty intense. His situation is terrible. Uh, Maybe you know this, but he basically had no converts. No one listened to anything that Jeremiah was saying. The one thing he's tasked to do, go preach to the people, was the thing that was being rejected. His circumstances were rough, uh, to say the least. Now, who is he speaking to? Well, he's called to speak to the, uh, to the people of God uh, in, in Judah, um, primarily the people of Jerusalem, but collectively to, to the whole nation of, of Judah. And what's the condition of Judah uh, during this time? They're, they're going through severe spiritual decay. And, and for, for the nation of, of, of Judah, uh, who is uh, it's a theocracy, they're, they're supposed to be aligned under the God of heaven. That spiritual decay led to social decay. It led to economic decay. Uh, they are in a bad place. <clears throat> if you've been around the last few weeks, um, you know, we were talking about Isaiah. Jer- Jeremiah prophesies about 100 years after Isaiah. And Isaiah is saying, <clears throat> Isaiah is saying to the people, if you don't change... If, if you don't change your, your attitude, if you don't repent from this, this, uh, your behavior and your direction, it's going to get terrible. And Isaiah tells them how terrible it's going to be. Well, they didn't listen. And by the time Jeremiah is around, uh, things are really, really bad. So maybe some of you uh, know this from, from reading the scriptures, and, and maybe some of you have never heard this before. Uh, but the nation of Israel was once this, this, this one nation, and its glory years were under a, a king named David. And under David and his son Solomon, they, they, Israel was in their best moment. They were, they were kind of top of the hill. Uh, things were good. There, there was, uh, they had more money than they, they knew what to do with. Uh, Solomon built the temple that was incredible and beautiful. And really from Solomon after, it just was this slow fade. Uh, the next king after Solomon, uh, the, 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 uh, the kingdom splits into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom kind of became known as Israel, and the southern kingdom became known as, as Judah. And uh, in 1722 uh, BC, the uh, northern kingdom was destroyed. So th- th- they're destroyed before Jeremiah is even in the picture. Uh, the northern kingdom's out of the out of the mix, and now there's just this southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. And as Jeremiah is called to to, to preach to them, e- e- Judah now has been conquered by foreign powder, powers. Uh, they, they had a good king named Josiah, but Josiah's dead. And, and, and all the reforms that Josiah tried to bring, they, they died with him. And, and the nation has spiritually spiraled out of control. Many of the people of Judah, they don't even realize what Jerusalem used to be. They, they don't even realize how far things have fallen. And here's Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, trying to wake them up to this. And it's become their new normal, in a sense. They know it's not good, but they have no idea of what it once was. 
They have no idea of what it was like when, when God was, was dwelling among them, where, where their, their, their uh, nation was, was aligned with the things of God. And if you know the story of Israel, it was never perfect. It was never perfect. The nation of Israel had problems with God, the, the, problems with obeying God the whole way. But there was this season where they looked back and, 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 and the king who sat on the throne wanted to honor the God of heaven. And they don't even know. They don't even know what it was like. They don't even know how far they've fallen. So Jeremiah is, is, is hopeless. He's a hopeless, weeping prophet because the amount of discouragement in his life and in his work is abundant. I said this a second ago, but it's like nothing he does works out. It, it doesn't matter what he says. No one listens to him. No, no one pays attention to him. And then Judah, the nation itself, it's hopeless. It's spiritually blind. And, and due to the destruction and the demise of their once glorious people, they, they don't even know how bad, it, how bad it actually is. And so you've got a, a demoralized prophet and a demoralized people. You've got hopelessness all over the place. Th things are really bad. Jeremiah is constantly being rejected. No converts at all. Nobody listens to what he says. Hope's gone. Both the prophet and the people are broken. They're both defeated. However, as bad as things are, God has some more things that he wants to say. And God's persistence with Jeremiah, I can't imagine being Jeremiah. I can't imagine the amount of, of discouragement and frustration that, that Jeremiah faced. Uh, you know, our church over the last 24 months has, has faced some incredible challenges some very difficult things, and it, it, it goes to, your, to the core of your identity. If, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if, if, if this church matters to you, if you're on staff at this church, uh, th these are hard things to navigate. But I look at Jeremiah's life, and it's like he, he never got any traction. He, he, ne he never had any progress. No, no one listened to him at all. There wasn't any evidence of fruit or progress or development or growth. Things are bad, but God doesn't quit on his prophet. God keeps working through Jeremiah. And God doesn't quit on his people. God keeps preaching to his people. And God doesn't quit. And this is a beautiful affirmation of the character of God in the world. He doesn't quit on people. As we come to Jeremiah 33, and we see these, these three verses, 14 through 16, it starts right off with these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. The days are coming when I'll keep my promise. You see what's happening here? God breaks in and he's using the prophet that the people hate and he's talking to the people who hate him and he says, I'm going to keep my promise. How's he going to do it? Verse 15, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He's going to cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. How is a branch a sign of hope? And what is this branch going to do? Well, maybe you notice this, but the, the branch has a capital B. It's a capital B branch. So it's, it's clearly figurative. 
This branch is referring to, to, to something, someone who will execute justice and righteousness. Goes on to say that Judah and Jerusalem are going to be saved. You know, Jeremiah is, is relaying God's promise. And the promise is that the Messiah is going to actually come and he's going to rescue the people. Je- Jeremiah, whether he realizes exactly what he's talking about or not, he's talking about Jesus. The, the, the one who's of the line of David, the just judge, the one and only Savior, the only righteous one. Je- Jeremiah is given this word from the God of heaven, and he is told to go preach to a people that don't want to listen to it. He doesn't want to preach it. And yet the news is God's going to keep his promise, and that Messiah that he said was going to come, that he whispered about way, way back in Genesis 3, Right after sin broke into the world, God's going to keep that promise. In this darkest of moments, God says, I'm going to keep the promise. So amazing. In the face of the people's rebellion, God says, I'm not quitting. I'm still going to send you the Messiah, the plan of salvation. It's going to happen. can't be thwarted. Even by the rebellion of an entire nation, even by the depression of the prophet, even by the rebellion of God's chosen nation. You know, there's a, a covenant that the Old Testament is uh, kind of working through, and it's called the, the Mosaic Covenant. And one way to talk about the Mosaic Covenant shorthand is that he, uh, when, when God talked with Moses and entered into this covenant with Moses, what he said is this, I'm going to give you the land by grace, but you're going to keep the land by law. So you want to stay in the land, here's how you got to live. You live this way, you keep the land. You don't live this way, you lose the land. But God then comes with a new covenant. And he actually announces this covenant in various ways. But with Jeremiah, he announces it just in chapter 31, just a couple chapters before this. And as he announces this new covenant, he gives it some clarity in Jeremiah 31. And here's what he says. You're going to get the land by grace and you're going to keep it by grace. I'm I'm going to give it to you by grace. You're not going to earn it, and you're going to keep it by grace. You're not going to deserve it. And it's this big, beautiful picture that what he means by land, what, what we mean by land, is this rescue, that God's going to save you by grace, and he's going to bring you home by grace. You're, you're not going to deserve it. You're, you're not going to earn it. That's not the way that it works. If it did work that way, we'd all be in trouble. The nation of Israel couldn't do it. You and I couldn't do it. But this is the good news, that it's given by grace and it's kept by grace. So how do you find real hope? Maybe you notice that in Jeremiah 33, the word hope isn't in that text at all. In verses 14, 15, and 16, the word hope doesn't even show up. Now, here's what's a little interesting. The, the word hope in the Old Testament is a pretty broad word. It's, it's, it's kind of general. It's, it's wide. It, it means security or refuge. It means shelter. Uh, it can mean safety, trust. It can mean waited for. It can mean deliverance. And so the, 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 the range, the semantic range of the word for hope is, is pretty broad. But when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament takes the word hope And it focuses it. It narrows it. It it brings it tighter. And and the Greek word that is primarily used for hope means joyful expectation of salvation. A joyful expectation 
of salvation. And that is exactly what Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16 is pointing to. That's why in verse 14, it says, Behold, the days are coming. You see, this is a pronouncement. This is the affirmation of the promise. Jeremiah is saying, it's going to happen. The days are coming. So I want to jump out of Jeremiah 33 for a second, and I want you to jump to a, a different passage in the New Testament. First, first Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 9. So if you have your Bibles open, feel free to turn over there. Uh, we read some of these verses in our liturgy this morning. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, it's, uh, Peter is, is inviting us into this work of God in the world. And he, and he says this, that we have been, <clears throat> in verse 3, it says, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Peter is, is referencing this word hope, and he says we've been invited into, we've been born again into a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How, how do you get real hope? The Bible is pointing us forward. In the Old Testament, it's pointing us forward. And it's saying there's a promise that God's going to keep. And there's this one who's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to bring salvation. And then you get to 1 Peter, and he's looking back at the life and work of Jesus. And he says, you want to know where this living hope comes from? It comes through Christ through his resurrection, through his life, his death, his resurrection. That, that, that is where we look to. That is where we find our hope. Jeremiah and Peter agree. The only place to find this kind of hope is in the gospel message. The, the message that on the cross, Jesus took everything that you deserved upon himself, and then he offers you everything that he deserves. If you look at verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 1, it's right after we're, you know, we're invited into this living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is, this is what Jeremiah is saying is going to happen. It's what Peter is now looking in the rearview mirror and saying Jesus won for us. You know, we've used language like this before. But if you were saying, okay, here's what religion says. Religion says, I give God a righteous record. And then he gives me heaven. So I do all these good things for God. And then the reward for doing these good things for God is he gives me heaven. But the gospel says, Jesus gives me a righteous record. And then I get to enjoy God forever. Religion says it's up to you. you. You do it, and God will give you back. Like you, you, you win it, God will give it to you. You put enough good efforts in, good works, God will give it to you. But the gospel actually says, no, Jesus has done it for you. You're invited into this living hope. How? By all of your not, not by your work, by the work of Christ. And in verse four, it says an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kept by who? It's not kept by you. It's kept by Jesus on your behalf. 
This is the good news of the gospel. Have you believed this news? Have you believed this, this reality that Jesus actually will come and he will substitute himself for you? That he will take your resume, which is not good enough. He'll take your resume and give you his. He'll give you his perfect record. That's the only real hope in the whole world. Well, I want us to see how hope is applied. Because some of us in this room would say, yeah, I, I, you know, I believe that message. I think I know the difference between trying to get God's approval and believing that I've already got God's approval in, in Christ. But brothers and sisters, you know, there's a lot of us in this room that don't look very hopeful. You know, we, we might say we know the difference between those two things. That religion says, you know, you, if you do good enough, God will give you, the, you know, God will give you heaven. And you might say, no, that's not what I believe. That's not how I live my life. But you don't look like you're full of hope. Maybe you could say you have hope, but it isn't applied. It's not applied to your everyday life. Well, I, I think that the, the scriptures invite this to be applied to your everyday life. J Jeremiah, the, the people of Judah, the audience that Peter was writing to, they, they are all suffering. And, and you may be here today and you might be suffering, maybe in really, really big ways and maybe in small ways, in intense ways or in long drawn out ways. You might be saying, if I could just see a light at the end of the tunnel, then I would have hope. Well, buckle up. Because you know what Jeremiah and Peter are revealing? That suffering is where we find out how well we actually apply the hope of the gospel. That it's actually in our suffering that we find out. A lot of people look hopeful, but it's just because they're on a good run. Suffering reveals the truth. If you're, if you're a sports fan, maybe you saw this uh, recently, but there's an, an NBA coach that coaches the, the Golden State Warriors. He's uh, a really good coach. His team has won several NBA championships. His name's Steve Kerr. And if, you, if you're familiar with the story of the Golden State Warriors, they have an incredible roster, but they had like, um, just everything went wrong a couple seasons ago. And they got like all the injuries at the same time of their best players. And they've had two pretty rough seasons. And so they went from being like a juggernaut that no one could beat, except for LeBron James. No, no, no one could beat them to a team that like didn't even make the playoffs. And now this year, most of their players are healthy again. They've got the best record in the league, I think. And they're doing really, really well. And at the press conference, at a recent press conference, their head coach was asked about this. And they said, like, how did you survive those two seasons? You know your potential is so good. You know your team is so gifted, and yet you're struggling to win games. You're struggling to even make the playoffs. What, what, what do you make of that? And Steve Kerr, this is what Steve Kerr says. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you can't maintain your culture during the downtimes, then you don't really have a culture. It's just dependent on winning. The culture has to survive losing stretches. So let me try to paraphrase Jesus. If you can't maintain your hope during the downtimes, then you don't really have hope. 
It's just dependent on your circumstances. Your hope has to survive terrible stretches. It's where you actually find out whether or not your hope is in the right place. How do you apply this hope that's found in the gospel? Just be strong? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps? You know, one day I'll be in my mansion? Just grin and bear it? Look, hard work is really important. My guess is that there's quite a few problems in your life that could be dramatically improved if you had a healthier diet, if you had some regular exercise, if you started going to bed on time, if you started to wake up a little bit earlier, if you started to track your financial life a little more closely, my, my bet is you got a lot of problems in your life that would be dramatically improved if you just did some things like that. And you should do those things. You, you, you should go to bed earlier. You should wake up earlier. You should eat healthier. You should exercise. You should spend a little less money. You should spend a little bit more time with people. It's crazy how much a difference those things would make. But what about the bigger problems? What about the unsolvable problems? What about the problems in your life that are literally unfixable? What about the trials you can't beat? What about the trial of death? You know, our usual fixes don't work. They won't work. Not, not on those problems. We need something more. We need something deeper. And the invitation is to look to Christ. You know, Christ endured suffering. And in his worst moments, we found out some incredible things about where his head was and where his heart was. As he faced the cross, he said, God, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to go to the cross. And if there's any other way, let's do that way. But not my will. Yours be done. And the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, tells us that as Jesus navigated his life on this earth, in Hebrews chapter 12, this is what we are told. How did he endure all that? Why did he go through all that? In Hebrews 12, we are told that it was because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You see this? It wasn't heaven. It wasn't the promise of heaven that caused Jesus to endure the cross. It wasn't the promise of a crown that caused Jesus to endure the cross. You want to know why? Because Jesus already had those things. They were already his. He just wouldn't have come. No, that what, what Hebrews tells us is that it was, it was making you righteous. That, that's why Jesus endured all of this. Making you righteous was Jesus's living hope. It's what fueled his endurance and suffering. It was the joy that was set before him. And so what does that mean for you and me? Here's what it means. Seeing that you are Jesus's living hope is what makes him your living hope. If you look at what Christ did and you realize that he did that to rescue himself a people, to rescue you and rescue me, to actually provide a way for us to be reunited to the God of heaven, then it makes all the sense in the world that we would look to him, that we would turn to him and say, whoa, you would do that for us? You would do that to win your people? 
You would do that to make this world right again? You would do this in spite of our rebellion? You would do this for a people who are actively hating you? Seeing that we are his living hope is what makes him our living hope. A recognition that he would do this to rescue the likes of me and the likes of you. You see, until this is personalized, and until you're looking at him and loving him, he's not going to be your hope. The hope of heaven or the hope of a crown? Those, those, those things, they don't even make sense for us anymore. What about this, that, that we get him? That we get to enjoy God forever? That there's a relationship that's restored? That's actually what heaven means. is for things to be put together again. For us to be in right relationship with the God of heaven. Until it's that personal, your hope won't change you. It won't change you in the midst of your suffering. You need to look at him. You need to look at him until you see him. You know, we don't spend enough time looking at the gospel. We don't spend enough time gazing at Jesus. You know, one of my favorite ideas in the New Testament is that the angels can't get enough of it. The angels who've been around a lot longer than us can't get enough of it. They long to look at it. And us, man, we kind of get, yeah, get a little bored. Keep looking. And before I close, let me just point out this final phrase of verse 16. Back in Jeremiah 33. Do you notice it says, when, when this has all come to fruition, when this has all happened, in those days Judah will be saved, Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's what it's going to be called. The city of God is going to be called, the Lord is our righteousness. You know, this word righteous or righteousness, it has, it has two dynamics. One is like a moral dynamic, that to, to be a righteous person is to do good things, that there is a moral sense of righteousness. But the second sense of righteousness is relational, that things are made right, that you're made right, that you're made right with God and with people and with creation. And on this last day, when all of this is, is, is brought to bear, in those days when Judah is saved and Jerusalem it dwell, dwells securely, when, when all things are made right, the city is going to be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Everything is good. Everything is right. Every relationship is right. When God keeps his promise, when the righteous branch has fully and finally sprung up in justice and he secures his people, the city of God is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. Now, if you remember that that Greek word that's used for hope means a joyful expectation of salvation, well, there you go. That's the promise. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, this text, these three little verses. The promise that the branch, is, it's not dead. That you're going to keep your promise. That the Messiah is on his way. God, here we are in the year 2021, and we get to look back and realize that the Messiah came the first time, and now we long for him to come the second time when, when, when justice is going to, going to rule and reign, when everything's going to be made right. When we look around and say, this world is righteous. 
This world is full of goodness and every relationship made right. What expectation that is. God, it is, it is right for our hearts to be oriented to this trajectory, to this story, the good news of you keeping your promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.